And we're continuing this series, The King We Want and the King We Need. So let me pray. Father, we praise you that you speak through your word. We pray you would do that now by your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes, prepare our hearts, help us to listen and equip us to follow Jesus and live for him in your world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're in the habit of giving birthday or Christmas presents to a young person in your family or a a godchild or a friend, uh, here's something you might want to consider next time around, if you could put that up, Corin. Here you go. Can you see this? It's a video game. Video, I don't think people call them video games anymore, but there we go. Extreme Chores. And uh, you can see on the box, uh, you sort of plug this into your TV and you uh, can do, it's American, it says yard work, I think that means gardening, uh, dishes, raking, uh, litter box for the cat. Um, and uh, there's mum and dad uh, encouraging little Johnny on, uh, avoid the elm leaves, the wind's picking up, motion-controlled video game. Now, can you think of anyone who would be really pleased to receive this for Christmas? Well, here's the thing. Appearances can be deceptive because this is a real box that you can buy on the internet, but as maybe is obvious, it's not a real product. The boxes are designed by a company called prankbox.com. And the idea is that you buy the box and you conceal a more satisfactory present inside. And then you watch the young person's face as they unwrap the present and try to get their head around what on earth you've given them for Christmas. Appearances can be deceptive. Well, for, for the Israelites... Um, You can turn that off now. The Israelites saw the king that that they wanted looked really impressive. And he looked to be the kind of king who would solve all their problems. And we were told, remember, when we uh, met him first of all, that he was a young man without equal among the Israelites. He was a head taller than any of the others. And we know how impressive height is. Is. Well, maybe not, but he looked the part. He seemed perfect in the eyes of many who saw him. But he turned out to be a disaster. The thing is, though, appearances can work both ways. Sometimes it's like Saul. He looks great initially, but he turns out to be the opposite. Sometimes it's the other way around, like the extreme chores box. It looks like the last thing you want or need, but take a closer look and you will be pleasantly surprised. And this line of thought about appearances that's been running through the chapter so far comes to a head now in chapter 16, as we hear of how King David came to be chosen. King Saul was the people's choice, but as we'll see, it's very clear that King David is God's choice. So look at verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, go to see Jesse of Bethlehem. And literally the last sentence of verse 1 goes like this. It says, I have seen among his sons for me a king. And the word for seeing, I've seen among his sons for me a king. The word for seeing is really important in this chapter. 
Our translations smooth it over and they make it easier to read, which is understandable in one sense. But the, the word for see, or a related word, comes up eight times in these 13 verses. This, these verses are all about seeing clearly. And the question is whether we see with God's eyes or whether we see with ours. And in particular, when we look at God's king, do we see what God sees or do we just see what man sees? There's a clear difference in how God sees and how human beings naturally see that comes out in this chapter. So here's the first thing to see in these verses. Man sees with his eyes. Man sees with his eyes. The Lord says to Samuel, I have rejected Saul, but I have seen a king for myself among the sons of Jesse. So go and meet him. Samuel thinks, well, this doesn't sound like a very good idea. How can I go? Saul will hear about it and he will kill me. So the Lord tells him to go under the guise of making a sacrifice. Invite Jesse and anoint the one that he indicates, he says. Now, the elders of the town aren't quite sure what to make of Samuel when he arrives. Now, what's going on? Is this uh, an Ofsted inspection or is it just a friendly visit? Oh, no, I've come for a sacrifice and it would be great if Jesse and his family could join me. And Jesse and his family arrive. And look, here is Eliab. And look how tall he is. This is what kings look like. He must be God's anointed. But as we saw a couple of weeks ago, just being tall does not make you a king. Good to be clear about that, isn't it? But the Lord said to Samuel, and uh, look at verse 7. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, I'm going to come back to the way that uh, the New International Version has translated that second half of that verse, because it's important. But we'll come back to that in a minute. But on he goes. Let's try the other sons. They go through them one by one. So verse 11, is that it, Jesse? Are there any more? Well, there is still the youngest, and the word there also means smallest. In other words, we've shown you the men, Samuel, but of course you won't be needing to see the boy who is out with the sheep. He's just a child and obviously isn't very tall. So send for him, says Samuel, and he comes and the narrator notes that he was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features, which might seem a little odd given the emphasis in this chapter on not being taken in by appearances, but actually looking handsome was never a human qualification for a king. What they noticed about Saul was his height and God tells Samuel to ignore Eliab's height. That's what people think a warrior king will look like, one who will fight their battles, but Here is David, and he's young, and he's small. And so this is a reference to his boyish good looks, his ruddy features. Not a description of a promising military leader. But the Lord says, rise and anoint him. He is the one. Now there's a story about the queen 
going into a sort of royal souvenir shop near her estate in Sandringham. And she went into this uh, shop and she picked up a souvenir plate which featured a picture of her and the Duke of Edinburgh. And she was looking at this and apparently the shop assistant came over, and this is a true story apparently, and she came over and said, do you know, I've heard that the Queen herself is in the area today. You might see her if you're lucky. And then she looked at the plate and she looked back at the Queen and she said, do you know what? You look quite a lot like her. To which the Queen apparently replied, how very reassuring. So you can't always spot a king or a queen when you see one up close. And that's what's happening here in in chapter 16. And of course, it's also how it was with Jesus. A couple of centuries later, Isaiah prophesied about God's servant king. Uh, In Isaiah, Isaiah 53, he says, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. And it's the same today, isn't it? We know this. People are simply blind to who Jesus is. So uh, I like to quote Richard Dawkins for some reason, but he says, he claims, uh, somebody as intelligent as Jesus would have been an atheist if he'd known what we know today. Extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? Well, the the Talking Jesus survey carried out by the Barna Group a couple of years ago revealed that more people in the UK believe Jesus didn't exist than people believe that he he was God on earth in human form. And plenty more again that he existed but was merely a prophet, a good teacher, but not God. You see, people really are blind to who the Bible says Jesus is. They don't see it. They have all kinds of other explanations and things to say except that he was who he says he was. And what we see here is that it's always been like this. God's king has never been recognised by human beings in their natural state. Not King David, not King Jesus. And when when you come to Mark's gospel in the New Testament, Mark's gospel makes it really clear. It takes a miracle to see who Jesus is. Naturally, we're blind. Naturally, we will conclude that Jesus is anything but God the Son on earth in human as a man. And we need God to open our eyes to see Jesus' true identity. So, that's the first thing. Man sees with his eyes. But secondly, second thing to see, God sees with his heart. Now, maybe you're wondering now where these headings have come from. Man sees with his eyes, God sees with his heart. The last sentence of verse 7 literally says, man looks at or with his eyes, but the Lord looks at or with the heart. So what, what is translated here as outward appearance is more simply eyes. That's what it says. The Lord looks at or with not outward repair appearance, but eyes. And uh, 
the, the word that's translated here as at could easily be with. And so it, it's not that the, the NIV translation is perfectly reasonable in and of itself. It's the same actually in, in all the major translations. In isolation, it could certainly be translated like this. But man sees with his eyes and the Lord sees with his heart is also a completely reasonable translation. And I, I've been helped in this. This isn't just my own ideas. This is um, an Old Testament scholar from Australia called John Woodhouse argues for this. And it, it, when you think of the, the context of this chapter and the emphasis on seeing and the emphasis on eyes, and when you think about the message of the book, it seems that this makes more sense. Because if you go with it um, as it is in the, it, here in front of us in the New International Version, you, you come away with the idea, what do you come away with? God looks, at, man looks at the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. It makes you think, oh, well, the, the, what must be going on is that David had something about him in his heart which made him more suitable to be king than Saul was. That's what it sounds like. In other words, if, if only human beings could see inside people like God can, then human beings would be able to tell that Saul is a bad guy, but David is a good guy. Or something like that. Can you, can you see? Now, does that really fit what we read and hear about David and Saul in, in 1 and 2 Samuel? I don't think it does for a number of reasons. Because for a start, was David really good in and of himself? You may know what happens later in David's life. He did lots of great things and he's remembered as great David, God's great king. But the, the, the same David committed adultery with Bathsheba while she was married to Uriah the Hittite and then conspired to have Uriah killed in battle so that he could take Bathsheba as his wife. David is a sinner and certainly in no position to show up Saul as somehow being of exemplary behaviour. In chapter 17, when, when David meets Goliath, he's able to testify to how God has delivered him before from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. Which shows us that actually this is somebody who knows God personally, and, and the Psalms reflect that as well when you think about it, that they reflect this personal relationship with God. You couldn't say that of Saul, but that doesn't mean... That, God, that David is perfect or has a perfect heart that is sort of obvious if you know where to look. And actually we know, don't we, from the rest of the Bible that we shouldn't expect any human being to have a perfect heart because all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God and we know beyond that that God doesn't choose people because he knows what's in their heart. He chooses us in spite of what he knows is in our hearts. He chooses us in spite of our sin. So the evidence that David knew God in chapter 17, that we'll see next time, is a sign that God was already at work in him and that therefore he was God's choice of king. So can you see, all of this means it's very unlikely that the point here is that you need to be like God and see into people's hearts and then you will choose the right king. Actually, the point all along has been human beings want the wrong sort of king. The king they want is not the king that they need. What human beings need is God.
God's choice of king, the king that God has in his heart. So this fits much more closely with uh, what we saw last time in chapter 13, chapter 13, verse 14, if you have a look at that. Uh, Now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people. God had chosen the king after his heart. Do you see? Here it's saying something similar, that God sees with his heart versus human beings who see only with their eyes. And so the heart in question there in chapter 13 is God's heart and the heart in question here in chapter 16 therefore is God's heart not David's heart so that do you see what the question is the question is not who is better out of David and Saul the question is who is God's choice which of them does God have in his heart and again this is how it is with Jesus rejected by men but chosen by God, chosen by God, do you see? And the point with Jesus is that you can reject him as much as you like, but he rose from the dead and he's still God's king and one day, God says, Jesus will judge the world. So get on board now before it's too late. Now, what's, where does this leave us? I think there's lots of encouragement here for Christians Because from a human point of view, being a Christian can seem so weak and so foolish and it can put us on the back foot. You know, a lot of people are fairly tolerant of Christianity as long as it doesn't seem to be making too much difference in people's lives. So when it became clear that I wasn't going to go off and get a job, you know, a proper job with my degree in maths that I happen to have, but instead I was going to become a vicar, Uh, My mum was in the supermarket one day and she bumped into an acquaintance who asked what I was getting up to and she she said, well, he's he's going to be ordained in the Church of England. And the response was, I'm so sorry. (laughs) As if I'd died or something. Uh, My brother is uh, a surgeon and his wife is a paediatrician and they've moved to Madagascar for long-term medical mission work. And their colleagues understood it when they first went, first of all, for, you know, for a short placement. Then they went for a few weeks. Then they, went, then they went for a whole year. And they thought, okay, well, you know, some people do this kind of thing from time to time. Fair enough. Plenty of people do that. But then when they effectively abandoned their promising NHS careers in order to go there long term, well, no, then their colleagues thought they were being completely crazy. Closer to home, if we're we're Christians, how different are our aspirations from those of our colleagues and our neighbours? God's desire for us may not be to live the North London dream, whatever that is, you know, in a carefree, materially prosperous way. It, It could even involve suffering and pain as he uses those things to make us more like Jesus, as he promises. Why would we put up with that? unless we are seeing with God's eyes and not with man's eyes. Do you see? What about our attitude to church? See, our culture tells us that things like church are there to be consumed like everything else. And you can see that in the way that, for better or worse, that, you know, the, the current COVID restrictions that we're sort of handed down from, from the government, 
It often feels like we're being treated as if we're, you know, we're a pub or we're a, a club rather than a family. And of course, you know, as we said at the start of the service, it's right to listen and take those things seriously. But we need to keep seeing things with God's eyes and realise, no, this isn't just another organisation that gets together. This is the family of God and it matters See things with God's eyes, not man's. The king we want, as we keep seeing through 1 Samuel, the king that we want will look impressive for a while, uh, may even solve some of our problems for a while, but the king we want will always disappoint us like Saul did. The king we need is God's king. He's God's choice. Even David is not actually the king we need, is he? Although he was God's choice, he was still in the end spoiled by sin. The king we need is a perfect king. God's choice needs to be God's choice and needs to be sinless. So that even though he is rejected by men, he is then vindicated by God. So the question then we're left with as we finish is, have we seen who this king is? Have we come to him for the life that he offers or do we still see him only as man sees? Let's be quiet now and think about our own response to what we've heard this evening. And then I'll lead us in prayer. Man sees with his eyes, God sees with his heart. Father, we acknowledge that our perspective is limited. We do not see all there is to see. We cannot. And yet we so often act as if we can. And we do. And Father, would you continue to to humble us and to cause us to rely only on you, to see things with your eyes and your perspective, not our own. May we do that with Jesus. May we do that with your church. May we do that even with your world and with the pandemic at the moment. May we see things with your eyes, not the human eyes of fear and panic, your eyes of trusting in you as we seek you as we wait to see what you are doing in us and through us through these trying circumstances and would you then use us to serve you in your world we pray in Jesus name Amen